Guys, welcome to week four of James. I got to say right at the top of this before I get started, uh, because there's a microphone strapped to my face, you have to listen to my complaint. My eye has been twitching for eight days straight. And it's the most, you can't see it. I try to look in the mirror. You can't see it. It's the most irritating thing of all time. And I was reading today in a coffee shop and the book got blurry and I'm like, here it comes. This is the end. This is how it ends. And so I turned to the person sitting next to me who's a total stranger. I said, does this look blurry to you? And she looks at me and she says, yeah, that page is smeared. <laughs> so that's the kind of day I'm having. But I'm really glad to see all of you here as we continue uh, in this book of James. I've really enjoyed the first several weeks of this. I hope the feeling is mutual for you guys. Um, I'm so excited as Lindsay comes back into the fold. Uh, she'll be up here in two weeks as she kind of starts to teach through part of James with us as well. I'm excited to see her take on it and the stuff that God reveals to her as well. I'm not gonna belabor the reset of the book tonight like I have the last couple of weeks, except to say this. Uh, James is continuing to teach us tonight uh, on very practical matters. Uh, he continues to tie it back to this perspective again and again of love of love above all else, of love being the primary thing, the primary way that we live as followers of Jesus. And I, I really believe this about James. I think James is, is of the mind that the only way to change somebody's heart is to earn the right to speak into their lives uh, instead of just telling them how it is to, to figure out what it, what it is to, to connect with them. And I think that's a really important distinction in, in a world that we live in now, right? a world that's increasingly disinterested probably in the message of Jesus itself, but definitely in gathering uh, and sometimes even hostile towards it. So when the manner of sharing for us as followers of Jesus is filled with contempt and frustration or anger, I think the likelihood that there's gonna be any kind of change of heart goes way down when we're talking to somebody. And I think that's exactly where James is at. James is seeking to bridge that kind of gap as well. He gets more into it uh, in chapters three and four, which will be uh, starting next week. But tonight, uh, for today, he gets really practical in his teaching here in James 2. So to set this up, uh, I was thinking back to my days. I was a youth pastor for about 20 years. And uh, this one church I worked at down in Colorado Springs, every single year, the like crowning event of our year was this missions trip that we would take to different parts of the world at first. But during the summer, uh, we kind of, after Hurricane Katrina, uh, got uh, into this mode where we adopted New Orleans and we went down there like five years in a row. I took side trips. I ended up going down there. 12 or 13 times or something like that. It was our main work. Uh, we talked about it all year long. We, we prayed for New Orleans. We talked about the people that we met. We raised money for this big trip. And then we would take groups uh, of anywhere from uh, like 12 kids, like on a college trip to 125 or more students, sometimes with four uh, volunteers, which is different stories for different days. Um, and we would drive them down in big vans most of the time to go on, the, on this trip. Now, there's a million stories. I've already shared a couple in the couple years that we've been open here uh, as Kindred because there's some of the, the biggest, like most formative years of my adult life. A lot of my stories come out of them. Uh, but chief among all of these stories was this. The days in New Orleans, rebuilding people's houses, tearing people's houses down initially even, they were filled with really, really hard work and really hot and humid weather, right? Have you ever done work like this or even been to New Orleans? Like you take a shower and walk outside and you immediately want to burn your clothes. You guys have been in a place like that before. That's what it's like there. We looked pretty rough most of the time, dripping in sweat, uh, you know, like dirty, all that kind of stuff. But every single year we would take one day out uh, and on Sunday, because down in New Orleans and the, the South does stuff a little bit different. They go to church on Sundays down there. And um, every, every year on Sunday, we would go to church and this super fancy Southern church, which some of you have probably been to. Like in New Orleans and, and, and at this church in particular, 
you wear your best clothes, right? So there's people in just incredible clothes that are very reverent. It's a very, a very reverent culture, respectful culture. And so I walked in on this particular Sunday with a hundred or so high school students and I'm wearing a t-shirt and a pair of jeans that I thought was pretty nice, <laughs> you know? I thought I was doing okay. And it's a, one of those things where if you've ever been in a situation where you're the person that's underdressed in an event or in a place and you just feel like you stick out, you feel like everyone's looking at you, that's how I felt that day, right? Um, you feel like you're doing something wrong. And I know like when I get wedding invitations with dress codes, I don't know, like, I'm probably not the only person. I try to figure out what in the world they mean. Is anybody else with that? Like I got one and I said, I, I wrote a couple of them down. This, this year I got one that was cocktail attire. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, what was that? And then I got another one that said, it's, this wedding is summer formal. And I was like, is that different than a cocktail party? I don't really know, right? <laughs> I own one suit. It's from the Target, and I'm going to wear it everywhere I go. So <laughs> that's the kind of person I am. Welcome. Um, so, but as this group of suburban Colorado kids, mostly young people, we stood out for a lot of reasons at this church. Um, but the most remarkable thing happened at this church. One of the pastors approached me and asked, hey, are you in charge of that group? And if you've been in this role before, I wasn't sure whether to say yes or no. But so I, I kind of sheepishly said, yeah, I'm, I'm in charge. I thought somebody had broken something because that happened a lot with my kids. And he says, great. And he leads me, he says, follow me. And he leads me up to the stage at the front of the church. And he sits me down in one of these like thrones that they have up there for their bishops and their elders. Everybody in like a $2,000 suit. These chairs have like purple velvet on them. They're gold. I don't know if it was real gold or fake gold, but they look amazing. And they plop me down right there with them. And I'm sitting there on the stage looking out at my students, wondering who in the world is gonna stop them from ruining this church service. And I'm in my jeans and my t-shirt with the best looking dressed people you've ever seen in your life. And it was absolutely humbling, right? Now, it heightened how uncomfortable and ratty looking I was maybe, but the gesture was remarkable, right? It's unlike really things that I've experienced in my life as a Christian. I was told when I was 18 and a brand new Christian, I was told one time I wore a secular band t-shirt to church and I had somebody tell me, I wouldn't be able to get into heaven if I dressed like that, right? Like, which is crazy. It's, uh, they, I think they got that from Second Hypocrites, if you're looking for it somewhere in the Bible. But I, I, it's, it's something that somebody actually said to me one time. And in a more serious time, I had another pastor one time look at me and he told me, hey, it's a waste of your time to spend time with people who don't have money and are never gonna give to your church. Isn't that a horrible thing? I think it's a rare position for somebody, a pastor to take. I hope it's a rare position, but it happened. Uh, and I really wish I was making that up. The truth is that most of the time, the world works so that those that have a lot of obvious things to give are the ones who gain the most respect or they're given the best things in return even. I was reading a book recently where the writer, he said that he never realized how easy it was to be given gifts until he became rich. He wondered why nobody ever helped him out when he was poor. But he said, this is the quote from him. He said, people love to give things to people who don't need them, which I thought was interesting. Favoritism and partiality exists all over. I did like kind of a deep dive. This is what I do most weeks. I'll Google the topic and start reading people's stories on the internet. And this week I Googled favoritism at work and I read stories of just crazy workplace uh, situations. For everything from... Uh, the boss hates me to stories about nepotism and all of it kind of just made me mad all week long for people that work in these random jobs and wrote about it online. There's this one story where a woman, she was, uh, she was an adult and she had this story from when she was in middle school that still haunts her. She was, uh, 
uh, in this academic contest. And the, the thing was, it was groups of three, kind of like a trivia bowl thing. And she went up against them by herself. And she won. She was the champion. And she went to be uh, presented at an assembly by the principal. And he added his daughter to her team. And he's like, here's our trivia bowl champs right here. And I just like thought about how horrible that would be and how rough that would be for that person. Most of us have a story that falls somewhere in there. And favoritism is something that we have seen biblically already as well. So as we trace Genesis here, I think it was a year ago, maybe longer ago, uh, one of the stories that stands out and will always be, uh, for me, a story of favoritism is the story of how, how Abraham, right, who's this great man who we traced all through our study of Hebrews recently that comes up here in James uh, pretty soon. He's a great man, a hero of the faith, but he managed to mess this up as well. So if you missed this, uh, we covered it in depth, so I'm not, I'm not going to go into depth with it tonight, but Lindsay taught on this last, last year in the series. That QR code in front of you uh, has has a link to that sermon if you're interested in hearing more about this later tonight or tomorrow or something. And if you're hearing this later online, uh, you can find that on our website as well. But Lindsay talked about how Abraham, in short, uh, was waiting on this promise. He and his wife had been given this promise that you will have a kid, even though they were at advanced age. Uh, they were they're looking really towards the end of their life. And they, they received this promise that he and Sarah would have a child. And as they waited, they had to wait 25 years. They decided to take the, the matter into their own hands into their own power. And they enlisted a slave named Hagar and they had a son uh, by her. They treated Hagar and they treated this son Ishmael horribly, like worse than you can imagine because they represented this moment of weakness to them, this moment of disobedience to, to them that they had decided that God wasn't gonna come through and they took matters into their own hand. But I think this is still true for a lot of us uh, today as we want our mistakes uh, maybe just to be swept under the rug or to, to be ignored or for them to be somebody else's problem, right? Or maybe even somebody else's fault. And God took Hagar and Ishmael under his wing and he protected them. And it's a, like Lindsay's sermon will unfold for you. It's a, a really incredible story, but it sets up stories throughout scripture and throughout time, uh, uh, how we treat one another at both our best and at our worst. So for his part, James, with all that history on his side and in his rearview mirror, he's taking a very specific look at this subject by dissecting the way that the synagogue in Jerusalem is treating people. And we're about to see, uh, like, the church that I encountered in New Orleans, although I'm sure they had their own issues. I don't know where the gold for the chairs came from. I don't even speculate on that. But they were doing this thing right. They were doing this part right. Here's what James says. This is James 2. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, Right off here, I want to talk about the way that James wrote this letter. So the last few weeks, we've been looking at the literary devices that he uses. Because in the typical style of this Jewish sermon that he's giving, he's using a few interesting tools. The first one is he's using something called diatribe. And diatribe is a word that I've been using wrong my entire life until I looked it up this week. Diatribe, I thought, meant some kind of speech that you give. But diatribe actually means using an imaginary partner in a dialogue, that, in a, like in a speech that you give. So James is having this made-up conversation here with uh, the brothers and sisters that he mentions here in verse 1. And then he makes, he makes quotes up for them about what they might be saying back to him, what they might be thinking about well-dressed and poorly-dressed men that come in. 
But the thing he uses the most in here, he uses uh, rhetorical questions. He's gonna use them several times tonight. Questions with implied answers. He starts here with the last line that I just read. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's saying this, you have done these things. You are judgy. You are discriminating and even evil people. He's uh, implying the answer there. But he also will do it again a few more times today, so pay attention to those rhetorical questions. And the last thing is this. It's wrapped up in a hypothetical example. He isn't recounting a specific time that some guy with like, I just keep picturing Snoop Dogg with like gold rings and like this nice like coat on, walked into their, their, their church service. He's not talking about a certain time this happened. Uh, maybe James is doing this not to embarrass somebody in particular that actually did do this, or, or maybe he just it meant it as a preemptive warning to the church. We don't know that, but whatever the case, he builds a, like a kind of a straw man argument here around this thing that he came up with. All of it is in service to his main point, the thesis of this section that we're looking at tonight, which is this, a believer in Jesus should never show favoritism to people. Now, favoritism isn't uh, preferring one thing or one person or group or another person or group or thing. Like I enjoy Nuggets basketball. I do not want to watch the jazz and I'm not going to, okay? I don't like them and I'm not sorry about that, right? Like that's not the kind of thing he's talking about. He's not talking about having a favorite thing. He's talking about mistreating people. If favoritism is a concept, it implies that the other choice in a situation is being caused harm by not being chosen. There's damage being incurred as a result of the favoritism that's shown. So in this case for James, there's multiple uh, strands of possibility, but one of the main results of churches or believers in Jesus showing favor to the rich over the poor, James is letting us know, is that the message of Jesus himself is compromised and a witness to it is compromised. And that's a really big deal. Uh, he returns to a theme that he's touched on already in chapter one to, to really drill the point home. And he again uses rhetorical questioning to do it. He says this next, he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, he's having this argument, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Sounds a little bit like when you just first read that, it sounds a little bit like when I got dumped in high school and my mom said to me, you're so handsome though. Like, like, you're like why would she do that to you? You're fun to be around, right? It's almost like, a, it feels like a platitude at first, right? James is saying, hey, the poor, you guys actually are chosen to be the ones that, that, that inherit the kingdom. And at first, maybe it feels that way, but James really means what he's saying. He's hearkening back again, like we looked at a few weeks ago to these words that Jesus spoke in his famous Sermon on the Mount where he says that the poor in spirit, those who are at their lowest are actually in a blessed spot because their obvious need for God makes them attentive to what he's up to, attentive to the help that he can give. So being in need of God makes it so much more obvious that his presence is near and that, it, that he wants to be the guide for us in those times. Now, like I said a few weeks ago, in these times of, of talking about rich and poor, this is not teaching that just because you have a lot of money, you're evil. That's not what it's saying. It's not even necessarily saying that you're unable to recognize your need for God and inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's not saying any of that. But it is teaching us this. It's teaching us that it makes it more difficult for us to see our needs for God when our life is super comfortable. And if we're being honest, when you think relative to the, the time and the history of the world, our modern lives and really to all of us to some degree in Western culture, we start at this slight disadvantage. It's harder for us to understand sometimes that God is near. And specifically speaking here, James is pointing towards 
real circumstances and the culture that he lives in. So what he says next points that way. He says this, he says, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the, whole, the noble name to whom you belong? In James's time, the contrast between rich and poor was extremely pronounced and really obvious as soon as you saw a person. And in particular, the way that debt worked in their times was very different than how it worked for us. Many of the working class people had to take loans from the wealthy and then they struggled to pay it back to them personally one-on-one. So it's like, it's like my relationship with Chase Visa, like if I'm just being honest, but except when somebody had missed payments or owed a lot, that if that person ran into the person they borrowed money from on the street, they literally could drag them straight to court. So this isn't a hyperbolic or illustrative statement that James is making here. It's actually something that physically was happening when they would take somebody right in front of a judge for punishment at that moment. So James is being literal and saying, don't get dragged into court. These are the people doing that to you. But what he says next here is, is really key. He says, because at the end of the day, rich, poor, whatever, all of us have one thing at the end of the day. We have our name, we have our reputation, we have who we really are. And James is using a Greek word here when he says the noble name to who you belong. He's using the same word that talks about a woman taking her husband's last name. So what he's saying here is by implication, James is asking uh, the, the scattered diaspora of Jewish believers that hear this sermon, that read this, this sermon, the debt owners, the slaveholders, they are casting doubt upon your reputation as one who belongs to Christ. They're trying to destroy you, not just in the debt that you carry to them and the legal action that they're taking against you, but they're making you act in a way that doesn't fit the character of a Jesus follower. So James is saying here, he's saying, here's how that happens. Verse eight, he says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So again, we see this, loving our neighbors as ourselves, as has come up already a couple times here in our study of James. James is tying it to favoritism by saying that this applies widely. And I don't know about you, but I have neighbors that I prefer over other neighbors, right? Probably we all do. I have neighbors that make sense for me to hang out with and neighbors that I don't get, right? And I felt conviction even this week thinking about it in the kind of a bigger way uh, when I started thinking about why that is. You know, living in close proximity to people every day, you start to see and experience their good and bad traits. And it's difficult to make the decision to be all in on some of them, right? And that's just a natural human response to the way life works, But James is using this to illustrate the the fact that no sin is better or worse than others, right? No neighbor is better or worse than others. All of us have issues. He says, if you're an adulterer and not a murderer, you're still breaking the commandments. You're still sinning. And there's sins that cause less damage, so to speak, right? We rank them as humans, but all of us have the same actual point of damage. These actions, these things of our heart, whatever they might be, they take us further from the heart of God. So for me, my penchant to gossip or to, to make fun of things, my, my anger that comes sometimes, my jokes that maybe I take a little bit too far, they might not end somebody's life, but they're still distancing me from the heart and the will of what God wants. 
And the point here is that it's illustrating something really key that I think all of us need to think about. We either really believe that in law or we believe in grace. It's difficult because it's real that the consequences of our actions, the consequences of those around us, they have implications and they hurt. And there are, of course, penalties to pay on earth for these different things. But eternally speaking, those things are all paid for and wiped out. And when they're given over to Jesus, uh, they never even have to be thought of again. But even the worst things, the most repeat of offenders, when it's all done and, and, and sincerely asked for forgiveness in, all of it is wiped away. I think that's difficult for us to reconcile sometimes, right? Lindsay and Cole were telling me about this show that they've been watching. Don't, don't judge them for this. They've been watching this show about Jeffrey Dahmer on Netflix. And they were trying to tell me about it. They're like, you should watch it. I got a few minutes in and it's too much for me, for sure. Uh, I can barely keep chilies down and I'm watching that thing. It's not okay. It's not good. Um, but it reminded me of this. Years ago, uh, I showed up at a youth group I was leading up in the, the metropolis of Greeley, and uh, the kids had heard that Jeffrey Dahmer had supposedly become a Christian in prison before he was, uh, let's just say he was brutally killed in prison. Some of them couldn't reconcile that a monster like that could possibly be forgiven and have his life flipped and redeemed, uh, and that the level of offense, it had to be so much more than that. Like, how could that possibly be true, right? And James is speaking to this in kind of the close of this section, when he says this, he says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I think for us, right, I, but especially for the, the people that this original sermon, this original uh, letter maybe was written to, this is revolutionary. This changes everything. Right? The, the, these Jewish believers that were raised believing that their sin could be kept like a ledger book. They could rank it and they could make up for it and they could reorder it. That's a revolutionary concept for them to hear that all of it can just be wiped away by the grace of Jesus. But I think it is for us as well. This freedom of Jesus means that we're able to be completely changed. We're able, we're able to move completely past the things that, that hold us back and we can evolve and change and become new people. We're putting basically our own lives on the line to say that. So whether it's my jokes or Jeffrey Dahmer's dinner plans, the things that keep us away from the heart of God are all the same, right? And mercy is an interesting concept because when it's completely in the right of somebody to punish or harm another person as they choose, but we see them instead choose to set them free, we see the heart of Jesus on display. When I deserve to be angry, when I deserve to hold things against other people, uh, when I, but I choose to show mercy to them instead, right? I'm the one who gets freed. And this is a really difficult thing because a lot of us in this room, we have things that we hold on to because honestly, they're legitimate. And, and we deserve to hold on to some of them. I'm with you because I, I really am with you because I have them too. But the challenge comes in this, trying to figure out what it looks like to actually be free of them to live the life that we know uh, that we can have, the life that we know that we want. James advocates here for the role of love over law, for us to figure out how to, to not just love each other better, but, but maybe most importantly, to be loved better. The, the mercy of Jesus triumphs every single time. It frees us, it challenges us, and it changes us. I've been thinking about it all week like this. Uh, I think that mercy is my favorite weapon against the pain and the hurt that this world offers. 
When I'm not doing well and I act like someone other than myself, right? I say things that hurt people. I, I, I get in an argument with my wife. I make her feel devalued and hurt. Mercy from Josie is my favorite weapon back. Or when my kids mess up and they're broken and they're crying at my feet, mercy towards them is my favorite weapon to employ. Can you, even just in this moment, think of the things in your own life where favoritism has been steered the wrong direction and mercy has gone wrong? And instead of us dwelling on those times, whether they're times we're offended against or times that we're the offender, our challenge tonight is really this, is going forward, how do we care for all? How do we show mercy for all? Not just those that we prefer or those that it's easy to forgive or those that it's easy to love. How do we show it for everybody? And how do we eventually make that the default way of our hearts, the weapon that we choose? The truth is this, is that we have a lot of weapons at our disposal. We can speak life or we can speak death to those around us really quickly. We can hold things against people. We can abuse people in a variety of ways. We can manipulate them. We can control them. But at the end of the day, across all of the problems and all the diagnoses and all the, the wants and fears, my question for myself and my question for you tonight is, who do you really want to be? Do you want to be merciful? Or do you want to be merciless? Kendra, would you stand with me tonight as I read a blessing over us and pray? If you're comfortable, I invite you to close your eyes with me as we receive from God his mercy, his understanding that his favoritism rests on all of us, that each of us is before him and each of us belongs to him. So Kendra, may we be the people of Jesus that show no favoritism, but instead embrace the person to our left and to our right, the person that's like us and the person that's different from us. May we know that the mercy that we receive sustains us and propels us It makes us uh, into this next season, into this next step, into this next challenge, one that navigates it with faith and with grace and with the belief that Jesus continues to move us through the worst and into his best. And Jesus, we thank you that you are that kind of God. And I pray tonight that the mercy that you show us, whether our sin is something that we would never speak out loud or is something that's really easy to talk about. God, whether we've been the offender or the offended, God, whether we are the person who shows mercy often or a person who's historically been merciless, that in this moment, we have the opportunity to receive from you the same charge that James gave those people so long ago. That as we look at those that are different than us, as we look at those that have offended us, as we look at those who cause us strife and trouble, that we have a choice to make. God, we can either decide that sin is ordered and that other people's is worse than ours, or we can choose to lock arms And look towards you and ask you to again and again show us the kind of mercy that Jesus shows us through his death and his resurrection, through his defeat of sin and his defeat of death for all time. And God, that we would be the people who belong to you, who cry out every single day for more of Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen.